Dear listener, just before we kick off the show, I want to let you know about a survey we've put together. We want to create the best episodes we can, so I'd really appreciate it if you could give us five minutes of your time and fill that out. Also, we're looking for a freelance audio producer to work with us on Adventures in Coffee. So if you'd like to work with Jules, James and myself, check out the link in the show notes. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Adventures in Coffee, a podcast about the caramelised and sometimes peanutty world of coffee. This last episode of Series 3 is brought to you by the Kawa Home Roasting System and Seamless Home Appliances. Now, here on Adventures in Coffee, we serve you surprising coffee stories to open your taste buds and your mind, try to inspire you to have coffee adventures in your own kitchen. I'm Jules Walker, also known as Lady Velo on other parts of the internet. I am a best-selling cycling author, a digital content creator, and of course, your very everyday coffee lover. My God, Jules, you must have your own personal milliner for the amount of hats you wear. <laughs> Juggling, baby. <laughs> my name is Scott Bentley. I'm the founder of Caffeine Magazine. I'm also an art director with my agency, Bentley Creative. And I'm James Harper, a professional podcast producer, coffee professional, and the founder of the Filter Stories Coffee Documentaries podcast. Brethren, oh. we are gathered here today to hear a tale of morality obfuscation, and all-round head scratchiness. <laughs> Big words today from Mr. Harper. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did you swallow a dictionary this morning, mate? It's going out on a bang. This is what we're doing with the last episode. We're going out on a big wordy bang. No, okay, listen. Dear listener, I want you to know that, you know, I have absolutely loved making this episode because at the heart of it is really the question, how should a coffee company source their coffee ethically and at the end of this episode i'm going to give you tips on how you can identify the coffee roasters who are trying trying to be more ethical these are quite lofty claims i think you're <laughs> that you're bringing to the table here but talk to me how are we going to actually run this episode okay right so this entire episode revolves around one phrase and that phrase is direct trade because at one point in the world of coffee and you know, even today, everybody was talking about direct trade. Mm. Scott, I know you were talking about direct trade. I was talking about it. But uh, anyway, I'm going to set this up like this. A couple of months ago, we were at the London Coffee Festival, where I <clears throat> incidentally also caught COVID. Let it go, James. We've all caught COVID at one point, mate. <laughs> We've all been there. I know, but I, the reason is I caught COVID is because I was walking around the show speaking to literally 100 people. I had a microphone in my hand. Mm. I was going up to unsuspecting coffee lovers at the show. I'm doing some Vox Pops, some from the podcast Adventures in Coffee. And um, want to ask you a question, anonymously, of course. And what I did is I asked this almost like series of questions. Mm -hmm. But this is how it went. My first question. So what is direct trade? What is direct trade? Have you ever heard of the term direct trade? Okay. What, what were the answers? Well, interestingly enough, most people didn't have a fig. Uh. Didn't have a what? A fig. A fig. <laughs> is that a figging clue? <laughs> sure, sure. What is direct trade? No clue. I have no idea what direct trade is. It means buying coffee that is direct from the farmers. That's... Am I wrong? Do you find that most people, like two out of three people, said they didn't know? I would say uh, most people didn't know. And then I give them a bit of context. It refers to the sourcing practices. So how a roaster buys their coffee. 
pretty stock standard stuff, right? How mm. a coffee roaster buys their coffee. Okay. That's direct okay. trade. Yeah. All right. Here's my hypothetical trap. Imagine you buy a bag of coffee from a roaster, okay? And one bag says direct trade, yep. right? And the other bag says bought from an importer who bought from an exporter. Which would you rather buy? You're a naughty man, James. <laughs> <laughs> Which would you rather buy? Yeah, I know that this is all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you shut up, Jules. What would you rather buy? I'm not. I'm not falling into your trap. I'm not having that. I've been around you too long to know better. <laughs> okay. Well, the answer was. I would probably go direct trade. Probably buy the direct trade one. Direct trade because um, wouldn't it benefit the coffee farmers m- much more? I think that's obvs. Okay. So here's the kicker. Because in this episode. I'm going to show you how coffee actually gets traded, even direct trade coffee, quote unquote. And when you understand how direct trade coffee actually gets traded, you're going to feel a little bit like these people did when I actually explained it to them at the show. I feel kind of cheated a little bit. I feel a bit misled at the very, at the very yes, absolutely. Oh, okay. That's confusing. <laughs> then I would believe that's false advertising. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a bit deceiving. Yeah, a bit deceiving, yeah. Yeah, taking advantage of, of that word. Come on, James, take us on the journey, man. Do you know what, James? Before you do, <laughs> I think we might need to hear a, a quick word from our sponsors. Now it's time to take a coffee trip with Siemens Home Appliances. Where are we off to today, Jules? Scott, we are off to Calca in Colombia. Now this coffee is named after the cooperative Comep Cafe and this is roasted by our very good friends Bailey's in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So tell me, why this coffee? So Scott, I've chosen this one because the families who contribute to it are of indigenous and Afro-Colombian origins. Now, one of the sad things was food insecurity for this community. I mean, they were earning less than $1 a day and food was actually being trucked in from quite far away only once a week. I mean, I know what it's like only doing our shopping once a week. You run out of stuff pretty quickly. Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? But the NGO Food for Farmers recently helped them develop home gardens. You know, like what we were talking about with the Sri Lanka episode. Right, yes, I see. Mm. Then they ended up with so much more fresh and nutritious food, they were actually able to donate it to nearby communities and continue growing delicious coffee. Okay, Jules, tasting time. Mm. Uh, We're going to taste this coffee on the Siemens EQ700. Alexa, ask my coffee machine to make me an espresso very strong. strong Jules, why are we drinking this extra strong? Because this is actually quite a light roast, so I wanted to pull out as much flavour from this as possible. So what are you tasting, Jules? Well, I was getting notes of sort of chocolate from this. I get an orangey citrus. Mm, And there's another thing that was quite floral for me. I don't know if you can put your finger on it. I didn't. Tell me. (laughs) Tell me. Elderflower. you got a far better palate than me, Jules. (laughs) And that was a coffee trip by Siemens Home Appliances. To start us off on this journey into the world of direct trade... We kind of have to understand some basics. How does coffee go from the farm into our cups? And listen, it's simple. Scott, do you care to explain this? Okay, look, really simple, high level, but as I understand it, farmer Mm. grows the coffee, somebody comes and picks the coffee up, pays the farmer, gets sent to an exporter, the exporter puts it on a ship, the ship docks in the country that it's going to be roasted in, and then the roasters buy it off of 
that company. I wish we could put the countdown music in the background of Scott <laughs> saying that as well. And listen, for hundreds and hundreds of years, that's basically how coffee was traded. Now, the thing is, it all came to a head in the 90s. This is when things started to go quite wrong for the coffee farmer. For a whole bunch of reasons, coffee mm. prices began crashing. And many farmers living in poorer countries who actually grow coffee, you know, went into the debt, bankruptcy. It wasn't pretty. So now I want to introduce to you somebody who I spoke to for this story, who has seen the coffee industry change over the last 30 years. My name is Chad Trevick. I work for a company I started called Recipro Cafe. It is a consultancy in the specialty coffee space, focusing on reciprocity and mutual benefits throughout the value stream. Okay, so it's the 90s. Coffee prices crashed. And I think it's fair to say that coffee farmers have an extremely hard time. But if you were a coffee roaster at the time, Jules, and you rang up your importer being like, Oi, I need some beans. What you got for me? Chad suggested that there were very few people who would have asked the hard questions for you to understand what the situation is on the ground for farmers in the 90s. Okay. Can you tell me the FOB price? Is there any certification involved? What do you know about whether farm workers get minimum wages? Those questions just were like omitted from the whole conversation. So those are important questions, right? So why mm-hmm. were they like just left out, omitted from the conversation? We couldn't have asked those questions because it would have been impossible to get answers for our questions. Because the reality is coffee roasters back in the 90s with this mm. kind of really dismal situation in the coffee growing world, the coffee that they bought, it was a big fat blend from a lot of different regions. So they didn't know how much the farmers were getting paid because every farmer was probably getting paid a different amount for different coffees at different grades that was all just being lumped together. I mean, absolutely. We didn't know. And I'll prove this point again, right? So I spoke with Erica Koss, mm-hmm. uh, who actually co-authored the Specialty Coffee Association Sustainability Course. She was a barista back in the 90s. At that time, we would see bags that were named Kenya or names that were banned Sumatra. But there was nothing like now where, you know, there would be a specific cooperative or even a specific farmer's name. So if you didn't have that information, I suppose there was no way that you could really ask those questions. So what you were just saying, if that information was not available and you weren't informed enough, you couldn't ask if the farmer was actually getting well treated you wouldn't even know who it is that actually grew your specialty coffee as well. The info's not there. Absolutely. But this is when things started to change. The news stories were flying around about the situation in coffee-growing countries. There are many news reports about this. And so consumers were like, whoa, what the hell's going on here? We know things are bad and I'm buying coffee and it's directly linked to the badness that's happening on the farm level. And For Chad, this grew and grew and grew, and it kind of exploded. For him, he sees a moment in 1999 during the Seattle protests against the World Trade Organization meeting. where at the World Trade Talks in Seattle, demonstrators started to throw rocks through windows at Starbucks and, you know, telling them they were buying sweatshop coffee. And and I really think at that moment, it's when the industry sort of had to wake up and go, whoa, okay, we're not even imagining that our companies ourselves might be paying these, you know, sweatshop coffee prices. So by the early 2000s, right, Mm. this is like a pressure cooker, which has been building and building. And then this thing called Specialty Coffee, had been created not long ago. And 
you know, specialty coffee, good tasting coffee, coffee that we all like to drink. And companies who are in specialty coffee were like, ha, we can't keep doing business as usual. We need to change how we source our coffee. And guess who they singled out? Who do they think in the supply chain was making everyone's lives miserable? I'm guessing the person that comes in between them and the coffee. Yeah, the big air quotes middleman. Exactly. So I found somebody who has seen this whole transition. Right now he works for Royal Coffee, uh, which is an importer, but back then he worked somewhere different. And his name is Chris Cornman. And I'm the director of education for The Crown. It's um, Royal Coffee's lab and tasting room in Oakland, California. And I'm a recently published author of a book called Green Coffee, A Guide for Roasters and Buyers. I find it quite funny, actually. So back in the 2000s, Chris worked in specialty coffee cafes. And, you know, the middleman, in air quotes, these stories were being passed along around, you know, the middleman, where Mm. every time someone tries to explain the situation, they amplify it and simplify the problem. And so by the time Chris heard it in the early 2000s, it was told to me as a young barista early in my career that we were being, you know, swindled somehow by these people who were taking, you know, massive cuts from both the roaster and the farmer. And so like all the real value of the coffee was being captured at the center of the supply chain by these white dudes in suits and ties who were also making big trades on the market or whatever. It was very villainized, you know, these fat cat traders. Does sound like a villain from a film or something, the description. Did <laughs> <laughs> it? The bad guys. Exactly. So traders, they're the middlemen, they're the problem. And guess what is the solution? It's direct trade, of course, isn't it? <laughs> Let's just pay the farmers good amount of money yeah. and we'll cut out the middlemen. Exactly. Cut out the middlemen. How dare they stroke their cats on Wall Street, making all this money off the poor, hardworking farmer. And um, when it comes to direct trade, there were many companies talking about doing it essentially cutting out the middlemen. Mm -hmm. But a couple of companies in America in particular became huge purist, puritanical evangelists for it. Stumptown, Intelligentsia, and Counterculture were probably the big three. And now Chris began working at Intelligentsia, one of those big three puritanical evangelists for direct trade, cutting out the middlemen. They needed some way to describe that what they were doing was also like ethically and business-wise better than Starbucks. And recognizable labels carried by Starbucks and the like at the time included something called fair trade. So direct trade, which, you know, the language obviously sounds very similar, was meant to capture people's attention and sort of level up and be like, this is better. This is better than fair trade, right? Direct trade, it captures the attention, right? It sounds like fair trade, but it's more direct than that. It's a great piece of marketing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so direct trade now starts kind of percolating through coffee roasters. Now, I find this piece really funny. So in the mid-2000s, right? So Chris, he's at Intelligentsia. They go really gung-ho on cutting out the middlemen as far as they possibly can. And so they not only were going to figure out who exactly grew their coffee and negotiate as close as they can to those people who grew the coffee, they were also going to handle the shipping of the coffee themselves. Intelligentsia actually went out and got their own uh, import license while I was working for them. And so they were doing like direct facilitation of logistics involving, you know, freights and cargo and ocean liners and all this stuff. Okay, Jules wants to question this. Why get involved in the shipping side of things as well? (laughs) Because it was such as like villainification of middlemen that, you know, (laughs) They're the fat cats. Everything they're doing is making the coffee farmer poorer. 
So if we cut them out, mm. we and the farmer can share the spoils between us without them. I mean, that's quite amazing, isn't it? They're going to buy their own ships. Are they going to hire the captains for these ships? They're going to well, hire. I think it's important crew? to clarify. Are they going to? I mean, how? They're not how, starting shipping companies. They're just doing the shipping logistics, right? These are other companies they're working with. But that, anyway, but the point is this: you know, they became essentially coffee importers working with shipping companies directly. Mm-hmm. So they're not cut out the middlemen at all because they're using a shipping company. Yeah, well, uh, quite. Well, that's that's, that's not whole... direct though, is it? You're, you're basically <laughs> using somebody else. I, love I thought this. the point this of direct is... trade was like, yeah. I, the coffee roaster, buy beans from you, then I stick them in my rucksack and Take I jump them over on to a... the dock. Yeah, yeah. and then I swim all the way back home. <laughs> We'll come back to that later, but I mean, for many reasons, that is an impossible model. And I'll explain that why a little bit later. Yeah. But uh, one thing I do want to mention is that there were many reasons that companies would want to do a direct trade kind of thing. Okay. There are many business benefits to this. For one, Chris told me that, you know, Intelligentsia would get first dibs on the best coffees on the best farms. You also get access to coffees before importers might. Okay. That makes sense. And coffee roasters really loved the fact that they could claim they were doing direct trade because the PR was amazing, right? Mm. So Chad Trewick from earlier, he worked at a company. He was actually sourcing coffee for this company. And they managed to source coffee from one specific farm, right? Again, a version of direct trade. And they shouted from the rooftops about it. They were like, hey, look at us. We were cultivating relationships with people, with humans at that farm and be able to tell our own stories about interacting with those people, seeing what the land looked like. We are not buying coffee from those slimy middlemen. We are sourcing our coffee ethically. You dropped the ethical bomb. (laughs) I did. So this is it. So by the late 2000s, many coffee roasters from around the world are using this term, direct trade. They're jumping on the bandwagon. They're shouting about it. But now listen, there are a lot of problems with direct trade. A lot of problems. I mean, if I were to write on a scroll the list of problems for direct trade would you be using a quill as well <laughs> with my quill and my <laughs> with your big hat. words as well <laughs> that scroll would go out of my window into the middle of the street it's that long uh, right <laughs> but to keep things simple i'm going to give you my top three go on the first big one let's say you're a coffee roaster let's say you're doing the intelligentsia thing you are handling the transportation yourself now if you're handling the transportation yourself you got to fill a container at the country which grew the coffee. How much coffee can you put in a container? I think there's probably something in the region, what, what is it, about 20 tons of coffee will go in a container? Yes, 20 tons of coffee can fit in a container. So look, if, if you've got a container and it holds 20 tons of coffee and you have to pay a certain amount of money to transport that coffee, but the problem is that you're only going to put 10 tons of coffee in there essentially every ton of coffee is going to cost twice as much to transport as it would be if the bad middlemen filled the rest of that space up with other coffee for other people exactly and so actually the landed coffee comes to your roastery at a much higher price correct and to take it to its extreme example so Chris Corman told me about a time that he was in Brazil, he was buying coffee for Intelligentsia, and he mm. found some tiny quantities of just some of the most outstanding Brazilian coffees he'd ever tasted. And we tasted them all and loved them and could not figure out for the life of us how to get them out of the country. Like, how do we even buy these coffees? 
it just wasn't possible that year. Yeah, the logistical nightmares begin. They couldn't fill a container. And if they can't fill a container... Got to go in an aircraft. And if it goes in an aircraft, your carbon footprint goes through the roof. Well, quite, quite. But also it's really expensive. Yes. Okay, now here's the second big problem doing direct trade in this very like puritanical model. Remember how Intelligentsia said that they could be the importer themselves, right? And in doing so, cut out the middlemen because the middlemen will make all the money. So uh-huh. if we get rid of the middlemen, we can make the money. But that's absolutely not true. It is a massive headache. It was a super sloppy mess. And, uh, you know, we learned a lot on our feet for a couple of years there. And I don't think that we actually ended up saving any real money. You know, of course, I've come to realize, in fact, the importer's margins on coffee are pretty, pretty slim. So it's a game of volume for the most part for traders. I mean, it's that whole thing where somebody will say, well, why should I spend a thousand pounds on an iPhone they only cost £200 to make. Ah, uh, yeah. And it's like, yeah, it probably, you know, the materials and the labour probably only does cost £200. But you go and find a factory, and then you go and find the workers, and then you go and find the shipping, and then <laughs> you go and find the distribution and the packaging, and then you try and make it for less than £1,000. Yeah. You won't. Absolutely. All right, so that was problem number two. Mm-hmm. Here's problem number three. So Jules, let's say you create uh, Lady Velo coffee roasters uh-huh. and you think, you know what? I really want to offer my customers some Kenyans and I'm a direct trade purist. Okay. I want to buy coffee directly uh-huh. from a Kenyan farmer. Okay. Walk me through like how you would get that coffee. What would you do to get that coffee? Oh, well, I, I connect directly with the farmers that I want to work with. Mm hmm. And then I guess I have to work out the plan of getting hold of that coffee and then flying it out from Kenya, which I know you're going to tell me. Well, no. <laughs> the thing is, though, how, how, firstly, how do you find the farmers? Well, because oh, see, they, they maybe, itself... maybe they've already got contracts with no, other people. No, so. yeah. no peeps, peeps, peeps. No. Even if you find the farmer. Yeah. Okay, let's say you book a flight to Nairobi, right? Yeah. Mm. You land in Nairobi, you hop in a Jeep, you go to a coffee growing region, you meet a coffee farmer. Yeah, mm. granted, there are many problems with that because they grow very small lots of coffee, et cetera, et cetera. But let's say you meet one farmer and you're like, I want to buy this person's coffee. They literally give you a bag of coffee cherries, right? And mm. you give them money in exchange, right? Does it get more direct than that? Um, in, I guess in... I'm guessing if, no. I think that's as bad as direct as you can get, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, okay. So that's direct trade, right? In a pure form. Pure form. Here's yeah. the rub depending on when you air this podcast, it's actually not legally possible for someone to do that in Kenya. So if anyone were to literally do that scenario that you just narrated, they would be violating Kenyan law. Of course, something like that was going to be the answer. Of course it was. But of course. What is the barrier? Why are you legally not allowed to go and do that? So I actually did ask Erica that question. This harkens back to colonialism. So the British government was specific about the fact that indigenous Kenyan peoples could not farm their own coffee. And then once things started to build toward independence in the case of Kenya, this was 1963, some of those started to change. So for example, in the 1950s, Kenyan law did start to change where indigenous Kenyan peoples could then 
farm and harvest and have some benefit from their own coffee. But the structures, such as the Nairobi auction, such as the ways that the marketing um, scheme Mm -hmm. is created and still with us in Kenya, these are still there. But this is actually a conversation with Kenyan parliament right now about, you know, will this change and what will that look like? So Jules, you asked the question, there's your answer. But let me drag the conversation back to these direct trade purists who were doing quote-unquote direct trade. The coffee industry, these direct trade purists, they villainize the middleman. And the thing is, they were right to, because sometimes there are, for the record, there are bad middlemen out there, you know? Mm. The old school, you know, exploitative Wall Street traders who corner the coffee market, or the coyotes. A coyote is someone who goes up to your farm, and they buy your coffee for the cheapest they can get away with. Mm -hmm. And you just want to get the coffee off your farm, you get pretty poor payment for it. And then they, you know, make good money when they sell it onwards to, let's say, an exporter. The other stories I've heard are people will come to your farm and they won't even give them money there and then. They'll say, we'll go and analyse your coffee and we'll give you how much it's worth. And then they take it away, they look at the coffee, they realise it's quite good coffee, they give it a grade and a score, and then they come out to the farm and go, it wasn't very good, uh, it, was, it was pretty bad, so we'll, we'll, we'll give you this, but that's all we're going to give you. Heard that story a few times. So yes. what do you do? Do you say, "Oh no, I want my cherries back"? Yeah, that's the complication. There are middlemen who do things which are not good for farmers. Mm. Like that's mm-hmm. that is a fact. But to villainize all middlemen and exporters and importers, etc., is kind of not fair. And so I like Erica Costa's take on this on the role of the middlemen. Direct trade implies that all these people in the middle aren't valuable. And they are valuable because farmers don't want to deal with tax and customs documents. And cafe owners and baristas are busy doing the work of the cafes and the baristas. So they don't want to think about it from that side either, right? So I'm trying to honor the fact that there are a lot of exporters and importers and all of these people who are involved in transport and storage, their work is vital. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have the pleasure of having a menu of coffee when we walk into these cafes. I think the other thing that a lot of people don't realise, the very valuable work that importers do, is they give you essentially a whole library of coffee that roasters can pick and choose from. And those roasters don't need to kind of buy a specific coffee all the time they buy from the importer and the importer takes on all the risk the other thing is that they've bought all the coffee up front and if a roaster only wants to buy one bag today and then maybe in a couple of weeks wants to buy another bag and then maybe in a month or two wants to buy another three bags they're not having to fork out all of the money up front absolutely so the importers are essentially becoming a bank for small roasters yeah there is a lot of dunking that happens on on middlemen middle people but they do serve a useful purpose so long as it's all being done correctly absolutely so if i may offer you my uh final criticism i mean as i said my scroll with all its problems is now on the street being run over by buses and cars (laughs) dogs are weeing on it (laughs) dogs are weeing on it but let me uh, give you my final uh point of criticism for direct trade So, you know, as the 2000s wear on and we enter now with the early 2010s, the thing is everybody starts using direct 
trade. Even a roaster I used to work for, they basically did what you just described, Scott. They bought coffee off an importer's shelf. They rang up the importer. They're like, what you got for me today? And they said, we got these coffees for you. And they're great. That roaster, I went on the Wayback Machine back in 2012 when they started up. They said they were direct trade. But that's how they got their coffee. I'm going to ask the question. <laughs> what does direct trade even mean here in this context then? Because it just, it feels like it's getting murky again, That's James. That's the point. That's the point. <laughs> Nobody knew anymore. Direct trade was invented by a whole bunch of different roasters who all had different definitions for it. And so the central premise is that trade is occurring directly between roaster and supplier, let's say farmer, to simplify it. But that's not necessarily the case. And literally everyone that's doing it is doing it a little bit differently. This again comes back down to the fact that somebody makes up a term which sounds like it's doing really great things but doesn't define the term. And we get to this whole greenwashing thing, don't we? Mm. Yeah. Now, here's an interesting thing too, right? So if we were to just take a step back and reflect, the way that coffee changes hands through the supply chain, like it, nothing's really changed that much. And I asked Chris Cornman like point blank. So Chris, if I were to look at how coffee was traded, let's say 30 odd years ago, right? And if I'm a coffee roaster based in America, I call up my importer. I'm like, oi, what do you got? I need coffee. And they're like, well, I've got this coffee here, got this coffee there, it's sitting on the shelf. It's, it's already been cleared through uh, customs, all the rest of it. We'll ship it to you, right? That's how it was done, if you were a roaster. Today, is it any different? <laughs> uh, materially, no. It's, it's exactly the same. The average roaster, our you know, Royal Coffee's average customer calls us up any day of the week and they're like, we're out of X amount of bags of X amount of coffee origins. What have you got? We tell them what's in our warehouse and then we ship it. The point is, the way coffee has been traded historically and today hasn't really changed, right? Coffee roasters these days ring up their importers and say, what you got? The only way it's changed is that rather than all the coffee at the source gets put into bags, which no one really knows what's in that coffee, and then gets put on a container, they now put it into smaller bags and label those bags exactly where the coffee's come from. Mm-hmm. And exactly. who grew it, and, but they yes. still put it in the same container and they still stick it on the same ships and it still comes into the same countries and it <laughs> still sits in the same warehouses. And over time, what we would have noticed, Scott, you know, when you got an especially coffee, as did I, you know, what, 10 odd years ago in the early 2010s, you know, direct trade as a term had began to die out. The term has been so abused, I think, and just used ubiquitously without strict definitions. You know, at, at one point, counterculture they got a third party to certify their coffees as direct trade. They were so concerned about the integrity of that phrase. And after a while, it just like, it wasn't even worth it to do that anymore. The term is like the word natural food or whatever. It's like, it's not necessarily a bad term. It just doesn't mean anything. Okay, so James, this is where I think we are at with this. You did say when you took us on this journey at the very top of the episode that the coffee farmers ended up getting quite a raw deal historically. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's pants. Everything's anonymous. You know, there's there's no way to ask questions and make sure that the farmers are mm-hmm. actually being treated correctly. So there's a backlash against the old school way of trading coffee. So then everyone hops on direct trade, right? They start using the term, but then that in itself 
starts to cause problems. That ends up dying out itself. But things have changed a little bit. So today we know who grew our coffee, for example. We know the elevation of it, etc., etc. But James, are, are the coffee farmers better off now? than what they were back in the 90s because I still want clarification here if direct trade has actually helped them out at all. Okay, for some farmers, often those who had quite a bit of money to begin with, this direct trade phenomenon actually helped them have financially sustainable coffee farms and it was great for them. Hmm. But for those who had a lot less money to start off with, even though we probably still know who they are, they are not that much better off, if at all, than in the previous system. So James, what's it going to take to actually fix this problem? The solution to this is pretty simple. Pay farmers sustainable prices so they can have a sustainable business. How do I know who are those roasters who are actually paying sustainable prices to the coffee farmers? I actually do have an answer for you. But before I divulge, perhaps we should have a uh, word from our sponsor. So, Scott, you know, a few weeks ago, you took me on your roasting journey. Mm. Now I actually have my own little journey to share with you. Go on, babes, go on. So, you know, up until now, I've been roasting up different coffee from the Akawa home and giving it to baristas to taste. Now, Scott, whenever I went with the recommended recipes, it was always a slam dunk. But sometimes I would go a bit off piste and experiment a bit, you know, tweaking the development or the roast degree in the Akawa home app and then send out those coffees. And for the most part of it, the baristas loved it. But I actually had a very different reaction recently. Oh God, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) So I roasted up some coffee from the mill in Ayaza in Guatemala and I chose a medium light roast and a medium development. And then I sent it to a cafe on the other side of London. So my name is Michaela. I run Bean and Brew Coffee Bar in North London. Now get this, Michaela got her entire barista team around to taste this coffee and they got geeky with it. And our first one used the one to 16 ratio on an inverted AeroPress. And what did they think? If, if, I, if I'm honest, we didn't get much out of it. So okay. we, we, we all found it quite grassy, a bit earthy. Oh, Jules, mm. you messed it up, babes. <laughs> <laughs> this is okay because, you know, I'd learned in the two roasting episodes that we'd recently produced on this series that when a coffee is tasting grassy without much body or any strong flavours going on, it's probably a sign that it hasn't been roasted for long enough. So Mm. instead of pressing the medium light button like the last time, I chose the medium dark button and then I got back on the phone with her. There was definitely a marked difference between this one. It was kind of juicy. I want to say juicy. I love a juicy filter and I could definitely, definitely enjoy another cup of that again. I think what this shows, Jules, is that, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect first time. And that was the the joy of the journey, Scott, and it felt really great to give Michaela a cup of coffee that she would love. So, dear listener, maybe it's time for you to begin your roasting journey with the Akawa home. So, James, we need to find the roasters who have paid the farmers a sustainable price, but how are we supposed to figure out who those roasters are? Okay, so there's a million ways to answer this question, but personally, for me... One thing that I look for when I buy coffee is 
I look for roasters who have participated in the specialty coffee transaction guide. I don't know what that is. So I'd, I'd like educating on that myself, please. <laughs> yeah. The specialty coffee transaction guide is roasters and importers from across specialty coffee have come together and they have anonymously provided the prices that they pay for coffees across the world. Oh. It's an initiative to essentially share more information with each other. So one roaster can't be like, hey, I feel really great because I'm paying, you know, 50% more than the commodity price for coffee. And it's like the roaster next to them is like, well, I'm paying two and a half times more than the commodity price. I'm paying 10 times more than the commodity price. Everyone can make their claims. And so it brings this information together. So roasters could be like, oh, it's much higher than I thought it was. Okay, this is what I'm going to be paying next time. And it helps farmers because farmers can be like, oi, roaster, pay this. It's in the guide. See, that's what everyone else is paying. Why aren't you paying that? So you as a coffee drinker, this is what Chad recommends. If you look at the list of roasters, importers, and exporters that are participating in the Specialty Coffee Transaction Guide project, it is a good place to start because it will be a list of brands that is willingly and openly sharing information about the prices being paid for coffee. All right, now listen. I feel like I have to do my journalistic duty here and say... This is still not a perfect solution, right? Like a coffee roaster who participates in the specialty coffee transaction guide may not necessarily be paying enough for a farmer to have a long-term sustainable business. But it's like a move in the right direction. Because as you've heard, these are extremely complicated problems. And you know there are people across academia, industry, who butt heads every year. They're trying to figure this stuff out. So it's like an evolving solution here. So today I would say best practice is you know, roasters who have participated in the specialty coffee transaction guide and you finding those roasters and purchasing coffee from them, link in the show notes. And you know what? In five, 10 years, there'll be something else, something new, better. And I can't wait to tell you about that when the time comes. Okay, gents. Well, I think it is time for us to roll those credits. The last time for series three. <laughs> Dear listener, We're taking a little break for summer, but don't worry. We're not just going to be sunning ourselves on deck chairs and sipping cocktails. No, we're developing new episodes for series four, and we want to hear from you. So we're going to create a survey. What would you like to listen to? Do you want to know what is the best water for coffee? Should Jules get an espresso machine, and should she learn how to use it? Should you buy your coffee equipment secondhand? I mean, is that the sustainable way? Or is it just cheap? Has oat milk won the alternative milk debate? How about we do myth busting round two and uh, well, we, we got to bust, bust some myths this time. time. <laughs> <laughs> but please do tell us in the survey and the link is down in the show notes. Now, one way you can actually support the show is to buy us a coffee on Patreon. Patreon's a platform where you can give a monthly amount to support the creators you love. And by the way, we're giving away a nice little kettle, aren't we? And a brewing device to some lucky patrons. So hop on, link in the show notes, and uh, yeah, help the show out. Thank you. But if you're not able to support us there, you can help us for free by telling your friends and family about the show. The more people who listen, the easier it is for us to keep the show going. Now a uh, quick aside here. If you, dear listener, live in the UK and work in a coffee shop, or maybe you want to open one, you may or may not know that the Coffee Shop Innovation Expo is taking place in October. Like the name says, it's a place to discover the latest innovations in the cafe world. You can watch seminars on how to build your next cafe and connect with other cafe entrepreneurs. Link to it in the show notes. This podcast was produced by myself. Uh, I wrote and played the piano music. And our editor is Amadeo Berta. 
Okay, so this is the bit where we sign off for the series, but like we said, we will be back. But in the meantime, enjoy your summer holidays and we will see you again in late August. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ciao, ciao.